Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of Healthy You Chats. This podcast is organized by members of the Healthy You Crew, a division of health and wellness at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Aisha Raza from the Women's Health Education Made Simple team, a group of medical students, physicians, and allied health members that help empower women by creating accessible, evidence-based online learning tools to educate women on various health issues. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so um, to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about Women's Health Education Made Simple and how you got involved with this initiative? Yeah, sure. So um, Women's Health Education Made Simple, or WEMS for short, um, was recently created by Canadian medical students and physicians to really help empower women in understanding more about their mind, body, and overall well-being. Um, And we hope that by presenting easily accessible evidence-based infographics and videos, um, the aim is to really increase people's health literacy and advocacy for women across Canada and hopefully around the world. Um, So how I got involved is um, really the fact that women's health is the focus of my practice here in Toronto. And I'm always looking for ways to improve women's understanding of their bodies, specifically their reproductive health which is obviously such an important topic that's often misunderstood or neglected due to people's discomfort discussing these issues with their family, friends, or even their medical providers. So hopefully through our videos and resources, which are available through YouTube and the Instagram page, um, that can really help people start the conversation. Yeah, um, I think that's amazing because I think like sexual health and reproductive health is something that's often neglected and something we don't see much in the media. Um, So it's great that there's this amazing initiative that um, you're part of. Um, And so today I wanted to talk a little bit about like the menstrual cycle and um, when we should be worried about having like an irregular or absent menstrual cycle. Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, Many women actually incorrectly assume that having regular periods necessarily means that they have to have a cycle every 28 days, like on the dot. Um, But it's actually completely normal to have cycles that are a few days shorter or a few days longer than that 28 day mark. So for us as medical providers, we actually consider a cycle to be irregular or abnormal if it's shorter than 21 days or longer than 35 days, or if it's really difficult to predict. Um, And so from a medical point of view, it's actually really important to have a cycle at least once every three months, because any longer than that can actually lead to some concerning changes in the endometrium, which is the inner lining of the uterus. Um, And that's the part that kind of grows and sheds with every menstrual cycle. So the longer you kind of leave it or the longer it it hasn't shed can actually lead to to problems down the road. So I would say three months um, is is what you're kind of aiming for. Um, It would also really be important to do a pregnancy test, of course, if there's a long window of absent menstrual cycles, because that's one thing that you don't want to miss. Okay, thank you so much. That was um, such so amazing um, that you provided all that information. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around like the menstrual cycle and what's normal. It's often difficult to figure out who to talk to about these types of things. Um, 
And so if you want to provide um, maybe your listeners with a little bit more information on like the causes of absent or irregular menstrual cycles. Yeah, so um, definitely, as I just mentioned, it's really, really important to always rule out pregnancy first and foremost in the case of a missed period. Um, and so after that, there's really a long list of lifestyle factors, things like stress, uh, intense exercise, significant weight loss or weight gain, um, or any dietary changes, things like um, intermittent fasting or having a restricted calorie diet. Uh, can all actually impact um, sort of your energy deficits and can impact your periods as a result. Um, outside of that, there's hormonal causes. Um, so things like having an under or overactive thyroid or an imbalance in your female reproductive hormones caused by conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS for short, which is actually one of the most common causes of irregular cycles. So outside of lifestyle and outside of hormonal reasons, there's also certain medications, things like antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, or even seizure medications that can affect your menstrual cycles. Um, so if you notice your periods changing after an obvious or significant change that you've made to your diet, to your lifestyle, or even in your medications, it's really important to talk to your medical provider and find the cause. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, I like that you mentioned how like going on like intermittent fasting and these diets that we're seeing a lot in the media um, might impact like your hormones and your menstrual cycle. And we actually recorded a podcast um, a few months back about like eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, so I would definitely refer listeners to listen to that podcast if they want some more information on that. And I guess kind of relating to menstrual cycles, um, would like irregular absent menstrual cycles kind of um, point towards maybe some fertility difficulties or, or like when should we become cautious about our fertility that starting to decline? Mm -hmm. So definitely having irregular menstrual cycles can make it harder to get pregnant, right? Because part of getting pregnant is knowing when you're ovulating and you can really only know or time that um, if you know when your period is coming. So for people like um, patients with conditions like PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's actually one of the sort of main things that people present with is their inability to get pregnant. Um, because they're unable to time their cycles accordingly. So um, certainly if you're trying to conceive and your periods aren't coming in any regular or predictable way, that would be really important um, to follow up with your, with your medical provider um, to not delay your fertility or delay your conception any further. Um, and really when you know answering about fertility beginning to decline, honestly, it's such a common question. I think I deal with this almost on a daily basis. Um, so the truth is, I guess, technically or scientifically, a woman's fertility actually starts to decline over the course of her reproductive life cycle. So from the time of her first period in her teens to her last period around menopause. Um, but we see that more rapid rate of decline, which I think is what most people are concerned about, um, around the age of 35. Um, and the reason for that is that we actually see kind of a, uh, a more quick decline in quality um, and quantity of your egg reserve. 
um, which makes it increasingly difficult to get pregnant after the age of 35. But of course, as we've seen from family and friends, there's certainly people who can achieve it. It just takes a little bit longer and can be a little bit more um, medically complicated as well. So even though we give that age of sort of 35 as a general indicator, there's of course individual variation from person to person, um, from family background and ethnicity and that kind of thing. But there is an, a way to kind of estimate your fertility at a single point in time. And that's through something called an AMH test. So that stands for anti-malarian hormone. And it's a hormone that's released by each egg that you have remaining in both of your ovaries. So the final result, it's a blood test, and the final result that you get is interpreted not based on the total number or the value that you get, but it's interpreted based on your age at the time that you did the test. So using the value and using your age, we can use it to tell if your egg reserve is high, low, or normal for your age. And that's usually what people mean when they come to me and say that they want to get their fertility checked. That's really the test that they're looking for. Yeah, I think um, it's important that you highlighted that like it's so individualized that it's hard to give an answer. And I'm, yeah, I'm sure you get that a lot. Um, and in terms of like getting that fertility check, where could people go to access that test? So they could certainly go to their family doctor, um, you know, someone who's familiar with interpreting it. It's not, it doesn't, it's not very technical and you can certainly very easily look up even the chart yourself once you get your result back. Um, or even a fertility clinic, right? So they do have programs for things like fertility checks and something else called social egg freezing, where if you're considering freezing your eggs for the future, that's kind of the first test that you want to do. So they can tell you if it's uh, a good point in time to do it, or even if it's worthwhile, because if your egg reserve is already quite low, um, they would probably you know, recommend that you try to try to conceive sooner rather than later. Um, so I would say your family doctor, um, you know, a walk-in clinic or even a fertility clinic would be great sources for that test. Okay, great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and going um, off that, I know um, there's a lot of like myths surrounding emergency contraception. Like one I, I've heard is that it can um, prevent you from like getting pregnant in the future. Um, are you able to maybe touch on that and some of the myths surrounding that? For sure. So that's actually the most concerning and definitely the most common question that I get around emergency contraception. It's absolutely not true. Um, the reality is that most emergency contraception methods, when we think about like plan B or the, the morning after pill, they're actually just high doses of your average birth control pill. Um, and so they're completely safe to use. Um, they have no effect on long-term fertility or infertility down the road. Um, and they may just cause a little bit of a delay in your normal menstrual cycle at the time that you take them, but that's completely expected because obviously you're taking a high dose of hormones. So it's gonna set off your cycles by a couple of days, maybe one or two weeks, um, but things should go back to normal with your second cycle. Um, another misconception that I hear a lot around uh, emergency contraception is that it requires a prescription or that it's really hard to get. 
And that's also not true. So there's a few different options for emergency contraception in Canada. The most commonly known is Plan B or the morning after pill. And that's actually available behind the counter at any pharmacy. So it doesn't require prescription. Um, the pharmacist can offer you some counseling on it in terms of side effects, but there's certainly no like medical exam or anything really required. Um, and then there are two other forms. One is called a pill um, called Ella, which does require a prescription and you can get that from your family doctor, from a walk-in clinic or from any sexual health clinic. Um, and the final method, which is the copper IUD um, needs a prescription and also needs um, like an office visit with a medical provider to place the IUD. And really the difference between these options is the time uh, from the, um, unprotected intercourse. So plan B works kind of soonest. Um, and then the copper IUD can be effective up to seven days after unprotected intercourse. Yeah, and with the copper IUD, um, are you able to maybe expand on, cause I know that's also a method of just birth control. Mm -hmm. So um, after someone gets that inserted, will like, will it also protect them up to like a certain amount of years um, as like a general birth control method as well? Yeah, so for that reason, it's a really great and very popular option in a lot of sexual health clinics where people, you know, may not have a family doctor or may not be able to get in anywhere else in time. So not only is it effective as emergency contraception if you use it in the first seven days, um, and it's effective immediately going forward as a method of contraception. So you don't have any kind of waiting period um, the way you might with a hormonal IUD. Um, again, it's a, you know, it only works on sort of the lining of your uterus. So it doesn't protect against things like STIs or STDs. So that's really important to always use barrier method. But once a copper IUD is placed, um, depending on which one you select, they're available for three, five, or 10 years. Um, and effectively, you know, you can leave it in as long as the manufacturer, you know, depending on which one you choose. Yeah, and I guess the question that might be raised um, in terms of like birth control and IUD um, is also its, its impacts on fertility. Do you know, um, do you wanna clarify if there's any like long-term impacts on fertility? Um, yeah, so we know from long-term studies, because copper and hormonal IUDs have been used for many, many years, there's actually no effect on your long-term fertility. And generally, we give people a quote of about four to six weeks after an IUD is removed for their normal return to fertility or return to their normal cycles. Um, and a copper IUD most likely is actually even shorter because it has no hormonal effect. So it doesn't affect your ovulation in any way. You still get periods while you're on it. Um, and really the way that it works is just at the level of your uterine lining. So that endometrium that we referred to earlier. Um, and it's also creates sort of a sort of a toxic environment to sperm. So really the only effect that it would have on your periods is that for most people, it tends to make periods a little bit heavier. Um, and potentially a little bit crampier. So it's something to consider when you're choosing sort of a long-term contraception, but of course, very effective as emergency contraception and immediate um, contraception. 
Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. You mentioned that, you know, these um, birth control methods don't protect against STDs or STIs. Um, are you able to provide the listeners some like clarification on what the difference is between an STD and an STI? Yeah, so to be honest, it's really just in the name. So an STD is a sexually transmitted disease, while an STI is a sexually transmitted infection. And uh, really all that means is that a disease can start from an infection, but not all infections necessarily progress to disease. So to give you an example, it would be something like uh, a chlamydia infection, which is a very common STI that can progress to something called pelvic inflammatory disease if it's left untreated, which itself is a serious pelvic infection that can lead to hospitalization and even infertility. But to be honest, in a medical setting, we tend to use STI more frequently to refer to all sexually transmitted entities, but both terms can be pretty interchangeably used. Hey, thank you. And how, um, like how often should um, people be looking into getting tested for an STI? That's a really great question that I also get very frequently. Um, so I generally recommend for people who are um, you know, between sexual partners is a really good time to get tested. And so obviously that varies from person to person. Um, if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship, it's always a good idea to get uh, an STI check with your regular pap smear. Um, so we used to do them annually. Now we're kind of doing them less frequently. So it's always a good idea just to kind of check and make sure that you haven't picked anything up along the way. Okay, and can you can you clarify like what is a pap smear? Because I'm not sure if all the listeners really. I mean, I think it's something that we hear about a lot, but I'm not sure if many people actually know what it entails and what the purpose is. Yeah, um, so a pap smear or a pap test is a screening test that looks for changes on the cervix, which could lead to cervical cancer. So it involves a pelvic exam in a doctor's office using an instrument called a speculum that helps us to visualize and kind of locate the cervix in the vaginal canal. And the pap test itself is really just collected using a little plastic broom or brush. So contrary to what a lot of people think, there's actually no cutting, there's nothing sharp involved. It's a little bit uncomfortable because there's obviously pelvic pressure. Um, when we insert the speculum, but it's over in less than a minute and it only needs to be done every three years. Um, it's also only done starting at the age of 25 now, so we've changed the age as well. And it's only done if you've ever been sexually active. Um, sexually active for the purpose of a pap test doesn't just constitute um, you know, vaginal intercourse, but really any form of digital intercourse or oral intercourse, anything where you could potentially pick up HPV or human papillomavirus, which is really what we know now is the root cause of cervical cancer. So we do them every three years, as long as they're normal and you continue them until the age of 70. Um, if the results come back abnormal in any way, your doctor will talk to you about what the follow-up would be. It could either be repeating the test in six months or they might refer you to a specialized clinic called colposcopy, where they just simply look at the cervix a bit closer with almost like a magnifying glass. And they do different types of treatments to find any specific areas of abnormal cells. 
So all in all, they're definitely recommended for anybody who's 25 and up who's ever been sexually active. And they're really the only screening test that we have to not only detect cervical cancer, but prevent it by picking up these abnormalities very early. Okay, thank you. And is that also typically done like by a family doctor or um, like a sexual health clinic? Yeah, so you can definitely get your pap smear with your family doctor um, at any sexual health clinic. Some walk-in clinics will also do them. Um, so it's very widely accessible. And um, to be honest, I think a lot of sexual health clinics even have pap smears um, on a drop-in basis. That's great. To, that's great to hear. Um, I know um, another question that many people might have is like, what, what type of vaginal discharge and vaginal odor is normal? And like, could these potentially point towards like an STI or something like that? Yeah, so um, a lot of people always worry about what normal means. Um, and they're always worried that they're sort of abnormal. But there is technically a normal amount of what we call physiologic discharge, and it's present for each and every woman. And kind of like all my other answers, it's very individual. So what's normal for one person might not be for another. So whenever I screen for abnormal discharge, let's say I always ask if have you had any discharge that's abnormal for you? So that would mean a color, an odor, or even an amount that's significantly different from what a person experiences on a regular basis. And if it's persisting for days or weeks, um, or if it's accompanied by any spotting or bleeding, which is obviously not normal. Um, so if you have any of those kind of on a longer standing basis, then I would recommend seeing your doctor just to have a pelvic exam. It could point to things like infection, like sexually transmitted infections, or even normal um, fluctuations in your vaginal pH, which is where we see things like yeast infections or things called bacterial vaginosis. Okay, thank you. That's good to hear. Yeah, I think a lot of people get caught up in the word normal, and um, I think there tends to be some like misinformation often that's spread in the social media. So um, it's important that um, people make sure they're getting their information from like qualified people. And that's why Women's Health Education Made Simple is like a great um, resource, resource to access. Um, that's all the questions I have um, for you today. But do you have any other like last minute, maybe myth busters or anything you want to share with the listeners today? Um, well, I think we've kind of touched on where people can access care for these different um, issues or different concerns. And so I just wanted to maybe summarize for people what we mentioned, which is your family doctor's office, if you're fortunate enough to have one, a student health clinic, a walk-in clinic, or your local sexual health clinic are all, um, you know, really great sources of medical information where you can either go as a self-referral or even on a drop-in basis if you have any sexual health concerns. Um, the only thing I would say is an emergency room is not the appropriate setting <laughs> to get tested for an STI as they're primarily concerned with really urgent things that could kill you. Um, so it'd really be only appropriate to seek emergency room care if you're having anything like fevers, or really abnormal discharge or feeling really unwell and it's after hours and you really can't get in anywhere else. Um, other than that, I would encourage everybody to look up 
resources like the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. They have a really great website called sexandyou.ca where it covers really everything around contraception, emergency contraception, um, fertility, um, normal and abnormal periods when you should see your doctor. And then of course, Women's Health Education Made Simple where it's really similar information, but made in a kind of easily accessible, easier to digest way through infographics and videos. That's fantastic. I'll definitely link those resources in the description for our listeners. Um, but thank you so much again, Dr. Raza, for coming on and sharing your um, amazing knowledge that you have with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.